Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Dr. Chris Harmon will be joining the podcast for our first ever book review talk. Dr. Harmon wrote his political science dissertation on terrorism in the early 1980s and continued that work as legislative aide for foreign policy to a member of Congress, and much later, director of counterterrorism studies programs in Asia and Europe for the U.S. government. A professor at civilian and military graduate schools, including the Naval War College, Dr. Harmon began teaching courses at the Institute of World Politics after 9-11 on terrorism and later on counterterrorism. He is the lead author or editor of six books. He holds the Bren Chair of Great Power Competition at Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. Ranking right at the top of nonfiction sales is a new book about Winston Churchill titled The Splendid and the Vile. The book was written by acclaimed author Eric Larson, and I believe it's currently number two on the New York Times nonfiction list. And with us today to discuss this book is IWP professor Dr. Christopher Harmon. Thank you, Anna. Academics are not usually the first to purchase the new bestseller. What motivated you to read The Splendid and the Vile? Uh, yes, Hannah, the, uh, the interest started with a gift. Uh, I have a, a sister who knows I'm quite a collector of Churchill. I suppose I have about 350 books by him or about him. And um, uh, she knew I'd want to see the newest thing. So that was an easy one for her for a gift. Um, I also come from Seattle, and that's where this author, Eric Larson's from. So I haven't been watching his career, but I know how important he is, and he's been doing a lot of good nonfiction. Um, the, the popular interest is so huge, too. Uh, everything about 1940 is interesting, the air battle, uh, it, all, it all is an easy sell. And then um, The Splendid and the Vile is, is, in fact, a nice popular history. I think. Uh, uh, Larson's done pretty well. He captures that feeling about what it's like to live in the UK in wartime, what people thought about the war, how they felt about their own government. Uh, there are some some fascinating things, Anna, like the discussion back and forth among people about where the right place to sleep is when you know the bombers are going to come at night. So, you know, some said the basement was the safest. Uh, some dreaded being buried in the basement, so they slept on the middle floor, uh, even though that meant uh, fewer layers above them in a bombing. Some actually preferred the rooftops. Uh, some said you should be in your garden, uh, away from the building, um, if it should collapse or fall uh, near you. Uh, so houses had something called an Anderson shelter, named for a housing minister. And if you took this simple metal structure and installed it in your garden uh, and put sod and, and, uh, and sandbags around it and on top of it, you could, you could be okay. Uh, it was advertised as being very helpful except for a direct hit. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, this is England. So all during fall and winter of 1940, uh, these backyard shelters would be very cold and wet. Um, the, the books then called the Splendid and the Vile, the, the, the term the vile is questionable. Um, one critic thinks that it has to do with uh, things like thievery in London after a bomb hit and wrecked a building. 
um, I have the feeling it's more about the Nazi enemies uh, and that that's what uh, the author had in mind. So um, he's got a, a lot about some of the Germans. Uh, and then between Splendid and Vile, there's a, a portrait of Rudolf Hess, which is really interesting. He's that deputy uh, to Hitler who decided peace was still possible and he snuck away and flew to England and parachuted down and got in touch with a contact there uh, and hoped to, to make peace between the two Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, part of the, of the book. And it's a good example of the kinds of things that uh, Larson covers in this one, Hannah. It must be really um, challenging to write anything new about Winston Churchill after William Manchester, Martin Gilbert, and all the other biographers who have sought to encompass the thrilling life of Winston Churchill in their works. I mean, Winston Churchill is certainly not a new topic or one that lacks detailed sources to draw from. Did Eric Larson find some new angles, government records, or diaries that let him bring to light some new things about this subject? Right, well, it, it is a challenge. Uh, between the years 39 and 45, uh, by every day and sometimes every hour of Churchill's life is accounted for, uh, so much history and remember that this is an era of the mass media and he was a compelling newsmaker. Uh, there's, for example, cinematic footage of him in action as a young minister uh, as early as 1911. Uh, he had friends in the media, some moguls and publishers. Uh, he, re he wrote a lot himself uh, and was well paid by the way. So he was interested in media and everything about him is covered. So Eric Larson has a challenge. Uh, he did find some new sources, yes, um, especially government records on things like popular morale and behavior. Uh, the government was helping sociologists with a project they called Mass Observation. Um, and those reports had that title or Home Intelligence. And they've given this author some new material. Um, the problem with it is a lot of those things are just banalities. It's, uh, it's quotidian stuff, you know, real life, but perhaps not so fascinating. Uh, but the author does make use of that, and he makes use of diaries. Um, uh, diaries on this era are numerous, and they've already been mined by the historians. So uh, John Colville, Harold Nicholson, Violet Bonham Carter, there's a lot of contemporaries that have really uh, done a lot to, to let us know what Churchill thought and was like to work with, and they're valuable. And, and Larson's exploiting these, although he, he hasn't found any new ones except one. There's one that's uh, by Mary Churchill, the daughter, uh, the younger daughter. Uh, she was a remarkable person, 17 or 18 in this drama about uh, 1940. She lived a highly social life. Uh, she became an officer in the air defense home units. And she lived with, with all these fascinating guests of her father around her at dinner and at home. Uh, she was also a very good observer and a very sensitive person. So uh, some of her diary materials fun to see and, and Larson got up to the, uh, the uh, Cambridge University where the archives hold uh, Mary's diary. Um, I knew Mary Churchill Soames, Mary Soames, just a little bit. Uh, all the academics in the Churchill business um, knew her somewhat. 
before she died uh, not so long ago. Uh, and she was a fine speaker at our events and a real a noble person. Her her book on Churchill's paintings, by the way, is, is just superb. So uh, Eric Larson took an interest in, in Mary Churchill and he used her diaries and uh, he's done good things with other diaries too, like for Churchill's uh, bodyguard. So uh, yeah, uh, he did find a few new angles. In this button in the vial, the author captures the feeling of being in Britain at war in 1940. But what you teach here at IWP, our 628 course, is about military strategy. Is the new Eric Larson volume one you will use in your course here at the Institute? Well, no. Um, I have some terrific authors on the strategies of World War II, and this isn't that kind of book that I would assign. Um, and it's not even the best of the biographies. There's magnificent biographies of Churchill, and this isn't one of them. Uh, in 628, military strategy, what we do at the Institute is really on the strategic level of war, and it's not so much about the popular feelings of people during the war or, you know, how many houses were bombed by, you know, the, the Germans on a given night in September 1940. So, what we do in our course military strategy is uh, students get David McIsaac, Maurice Matloff, D. Clayton James, uh, all these chapters from uh, Makers of Modern Strategy, which is a marvelous book. And then um, I've recovered John Keegan. Keegan uh, did a great one-volume history called The Second World War, and it's kind of forgotten now, and it shouldn't be. Um, it's been buried by a flood of new things, some of which are good. Uh, but John Keegan looked at the war in terms of strategic choices. You know, what what different things could Hitler or Stalin do? What what were the choices strategically Roosevelt made or Churchill made? Were they the right ones? What options did they have? Um, and then uh, also we have a little sort of recommended section and always in the syllabus. And uh, one of my own pieces is there. I got interested in this drama about area bombing, you know, city bombing. There's a continuous debate about it. So I wrote a monograph about this published years ago by the Naval War College. And, and that's offered to the students if they wanna look at some recommended things. So we do study the, the air war uh, in the course, but uh, but uh, Hannah, we won't be we won't be assigning this new book. Apart from what we've discussed, what other strengths and weaknesses do you see in the Splendid and the Vile? It is a an interesting book. Um, the author takes a lot of interest, for example, in the technical side of the German bombing campaign. It was a real war between the the techies, the experts in things like radar and directional beams, um, Larson's very good at making that technology accessible. Uh, I was thinking a little about why people like Tom Clancy's novels, you know, they give us a, a great understanding of how weaponry actually works. Uh, Eric Larson details some of the different types of German ordnance dropped on England, uh, such as uh, some of these uh, monstrous big bombs uh, and uh, parachute mines, which would float down and then could really take out a whole part of a city block. Um, I enjoyed the depiction of uh, life at Checkers. 
So uh, Churchill's famous for his country home Chartwell. I'm speaking though of, uh, of checkers. It was a country estate that was deeded to the government by a donor. Uh, his view was the prime ministers work very hard. They need to get away from their business, get out of London. And so this was about an hour drive outside of London. And the house rule was don't bring your work. But of course, that doesn't work for Winston Churchill. So he, he, um, he could relax, but he always, always worked every day. Some, um, so the dinners he held at Checkers were really interesting, and there wouldn't be uh, generals there, or maybe a few overseas visitors or officials from government, uh, visitors from the United States. Uh, and Checkers was never bombed. Uh, Buckingham Palace was hit, but not Checkers. And um, so the life uh, is depicted there very well. Uh, I guess one other thing, the, la the last thing I would say about the strengths was as an academic, I, I liked his bibliography. So he went through a lot of sources from several countries. And uh, this isn't the kind of work that's going to satisfy uh, a pro on, on World War II air power like Williamson Murray. Uh, but he was a serious writer. Uh, and um, this book is, is a is, is, is adequate and he, and, he's, and he doesn't make mistakes. There's some weaknesses. Um, uh, he has a quirky thing which readers would notice or other writers would notice. He, he uh, plays around with chapter length in a kind of quirky way. Some are incredibly short, as little as a few sentences or a, a page and a half. Um, and then some chapters cobble together these very odd things. Um, in a way that's maybe not natural. So it, it is quirky. I, I think he was kind of playing the game that the modern painters do, sort of, you know, let's break break the rules and, and see what people notice. Um, he does try to get in uh, some of the German perspectives, but again, I'm not sure uh, that's a strength of the book. It's just a, a kind of marginal part of the book. He has some some Goebbels and some Goring and some Hitler, but Somehow it doesn't quite fit too well in a book about uh, a British public opinion. So, you know, they didn't know what the Luftwaffe strategy was. They saw this as a struggle of wills, the people of Britain. Uh, they were going to win that. Uh, they did in part because of Churchill's moral strengths. Um, but they weren't experts on the strategy and, and not even after the war. Um, so the two don't fit together too well. Um, in short, uh, there's strengths and, and weaknesses in this one, Anna. Uh, I strongly prefer the prose of William Manchester and the history of Martin Gilbert. Being a Churchill buff, uh, what is the most surprising or unusual thing you found in this nonfiction book? Um, the opening photo is a real winner. I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to see it on the screen. The, it's a, it's a beautiful black and white photo. There's a kind of gray day in London. There's a three British men all in the hats and coats and dark clothes. And uh, it's 1940 and they're standing in a bookshop or a library in front of, of all these tall shelves jammed with books. And they're reading and scanning the titles on the shelves and it's all very calm and, and looks very British, right? And then, you realize, of course, the, the building has been blasted to pieces. There's no roof. Uh, there's not many walls. The, the light 
on the guy's reading is natural light because there's no ceiling. There's rubble piles all over the floor. So this is a bookshop or a library that's been blasted open. And uh, yet here you have these, these Britons uh, appreciating good books in a bizarre kind of uh, out of door setting. It's a great photo. Uh, it's the only one in the book. Um, I would say a second thing that was surprising and, and interesting is uh, I don't know a lot about uh, censorship during the war, but uh, it was pretty common. And uh, this, uh, this volume goes into it uh, to a degree. And you see, for example, when one of the troop carriers named the Lancastria was sunk, uh, they uh, didn't even report it. The news was carefully censored for a long time until other sources reported it, newspapers. Um, so the government had trouble. It tried to suppress the news. Then, of course, the news came out in part because there were 2,500 survivors who came back to, to England. And so finally, they have to kind of get around to the news coming out. But then it looks like uh, they've hidden it. And, um, uh, you know, people wonder, gee, if that was disaster was hidden from us, what other disasters may be? So um, it was a rare case because Churchill's usual approach was to admit adversity and then and then and then play up national resilience to adversity. Uh, in this case, he went the censorship route and it didn't really work. Uh, but there were there were regular policies uh, on censorship. It was quite extensive. Um, I guess uh, one more thing. Uh, you know, I never studied the career of uh, Max Aitken, uh, Lord Beaverbrook. And Eric Larson gives us a very rich account of Beaverbrook. He was Minister for Aircraft Production, so it couldn't be more central to the story, Battle of Britain and all. Um, he emerges here as a, as a capable and surprising character. He did wonders in, in producing fighters and bombers. And uh, fed, fellow ministers thought he was predatory because he was always stealing their resources. Uh, and, but, he, but he worked miracles, and it was key because the Ephesians in the 30s had not had Britain producing nearly enough aircraft, and uh, they desperately needed now to, to match up with the Luftwaffe. And Beaverbrook is really responsible for making a lot of that happen. He was, he was sick. He was overworked. Uh, he tried over and over again to resign which is fascinating. And Churchill just wouldn't let him do it. He, he couldn't do without him for years. Then he served and, and did really, really good service. So uh, those were a few of the things that uh, are surprising and, and pleasing about this book. In your opinion, what are the best reasons for us to still study Winston Churchill today, half a century after his death? Three or four, certainly, Hannah. Um, one is just kind of psychology and morals. Uh, he's a great a personal example of character. You know, what a person can do despite adversity. Um, it's a great counterweight to today when it's a kind of a, almost a cult of victimhood. And um, he, he really looked at life differently. Uh, obviously, oratory. Uh, we all like great oratory and sometimes you know it really makes a difference in how the public acts or, or what the government decides and 1940 is a great example um, now when we listen to him uh, it's not always as impressive as you think 
uh, it's the mix of recordings out there. Some were made after he'd given the same speech in Parliament, and so he'd arrive at BBC Studios, and he was pretty tired out, and, and he sounds like it, and you can't hear Parliament because they didn't allow taping inside. Um, so he had to redo the same speech the same day, maybe. And then there's some other recordings that are also done after the war. So he's reading into a mic and he's an older man. And it, so it, not everything that's out there, tape and LP, is, is as great as some of the others. Uh, it's a mix. Uh, third, I, third is definitely history. Uh, this guy's an unbelievably good writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature because of how he can uh, bring a chronicle alive. Uh, the Gathering Storm, the first volume in his World War II history, uh, is a masterpiece. Uh, it affected me deeply in grad school, and it can be reread nicely now in parallel with this new nonfiction book, uh, The Splendid and the Vile. And then uh, I guess to close, I would just say the statecraft, obviously. At our school, the Institute, there's a, an understanding of the real challenges of statecraft, the responsibilities of people in government, how severe they are, how taxing. And, and Churchill's life after half a century is still exemplary. Um, he was principled, for example, but but able enough in a, in a way of prudence and compromise to deal with political realities. I mean, how 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 does how does anyone deal with Stalin and the London Polish government in exile at the same time? Uh, you know, the the Polish government in exile knows Stalin's trying to steal part of Poland. Uh, how do you negotiate with with those kind of people? Uh, to your left and right, it's just so such a problem. And he also was terrific at building building good relationships. So he's famous for the the Roosevelt relationship, but he's also more widely a master of coalition warfare. That's a theme that I stress in in 628 modern uh, military strategies. The, the building of coalitions has been a, a primary way that modern wars are won. So. Um, that's at least four reasons I think uh, Churchill's still worth studying, Hannah. Well, Dr. Harmon, that is all the questions I have for you today. It was a pleasure having you with us. Again, thank you for joining the IWP podcast for our first ever book review talk and discussing Eric Larson's new book, The Splendid and the Vile. It was a pleasure. We'll have to do another book another day. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.